It's great to see you here tonight. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, again, if you're new here at the summit, we really do want to say thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you being here with us. It's always a pleasure to have you end your weekend with us. And uh, so I just wanted to start by saying thanks. Our normal teaching pastor, uh, Brian Barley, he's actually out of the country right now. Some of you know he's on vacation. And he's, uh, he's over in the UK. And uh, I think he just landed today in Ireland which uh, was really funny. I think he's been working for months to grow the big red beard in order to fit in with his ancestors. And uh, we're just praying that he comes back and uh, doesn't fall too in love with Ireland. But uh, apparently he's having a great time. He's having, uh, getting a lot of rest as well as uh, just yesterday, I think it was, he was actually able to meet up with one of the churches that we've told you about that we're beginning to develop a partnership with in London. And so that's really, really exciting for our church as we try to be a church that is helping reach the entire world, mainly by uh, kind of focusing on some few international cities that are really, really insignificant. So um, Brian's over there right now. Be praying for him and his family as they uh, come back next week. And um, again, just glad that you could be a part of this as we continue to walk through the gospel according to Mark with us as a church. Well, it was, uh, it was just a few weeks ago that we took our first ever Metzger family vacation, road trip style. We had never done anything like this before. This was brand new for us. We weren't visiting any family. We weren't flying anywhere. Uh, this was just your good old American style family road trip. And got in the car, literally jumped on I-70 West and headed west for about 350, 400 miles. First stop being Moab, Utah. It was great. We loaded up. I mean, I'll say that on the front end. There was nothing, there's no disastrous end to the story. I mean, it was a great time, a great trip. We had so much fun. We saw so many beautiful places. We experienced so many beautiful sights. We learned a lot. Um, and it was an overall fantastic trip for my family. And um, I'll say this, though. With all of the planning that we did, and by we, I mean Angela, she did all of the planning on that trip. Uh, she figured out all of the restaurants we would eat. At. We, she, she figured out the places that we would stay the parks that we would visit, I mean, everything. She did so much planning. It was so incredible, so helpful. Um, but despite all of the planning that we put into this trip, it was really funny. We kind of learned something on the back end, something that we weren't really prepared for, something that we hadn't planned for or expected in any way. You know what that was? We had forgotten what it was like to be a little kid staying in a hotel, Can you remember what it was like as a little kid to stay in a hotel? Maybe even the very first time you ever did that. I mean, it's like my daughter's three, and she was, as soon as we walked in, she's like, this place is awesome. I mean, this is incredible. There's like, we get in this room, and there's two giant beds, and I can just jump on. I can jump from one over to the other, and we got a TV right here in my room, and mom and dad are over here, and I've got my own bed, and this is awesome, and we're like, ordering pizza and watching movies, and she's just having a ball. And then like the next morning, it's like, there's a continental breakfast, which means I can go get as much food as I want. I can just keep going up there, and I can get milk, and I can get chocolate milk, and I can get orange juice, and I can get apple juice, and it's awesome. And if I don't eat or drink any of this stuff, you know what? It's okay. Like Mom's not going to get offended. She didn't make it, so I can just take a bite and be like, I'm done with that. And that's exactly what Raleigh was doing. And, you know, it's funny, like, we didn't plan on that at all. And then the icing on the cake, better than Arches National Park, better than Canyonlands, better than the most beautiful sunsets you've ever seen in your entire life. You know what it was? The swimming pool. 
AKA paradise for a three-year-old. I mean, every day Raleigh's just begging, when do we get to go back to the pool? I want to go swimming. I'm like, we're hiking the most beautiful hikes ever. Yeah, I want to go swimming right now. (laughs) In fact, if you were to ask Raleigh, like, what does she remember about Utah? She'll tell you one thing, the pools. She loved it, which kind of made me think, maybe next summer when we do our next family vacation, instead of driving all the way to Utah and back, I'm going to just drive downtown. And I'm going to book a room at the Marriott, and we'll enjoy the pool and call it good. Now, the reason why I start with that this evening is because uh, going into that trip, I mean, we had certain expectations for how it was going, going to go, certain expectations for what we would enjoy, certain expectations for one another. Like, I'll take care of the navigation and the driving. You take care of all the snacks and the music. I mean, Angela, she had the, the Taylor Swift on standby at any moment. She could you know, shake it off. We were ready to go. It was awesome. We had expectations for what would be worthwhile. There would be certain places that we just thought would be so cool to visit, places that we thought would be fun, especially for the kids. And you know what? I mean, the reality is, like, there were some times that we were right. I mean, we hit the nail on the head, and it was awesome, and it was the best day ever, and we had so much fun together as a family. And then there were other days where we were wrong. We were. When we look back, we were wrong. And as much as we had expected this restaurant to be a hit, and as much as we expected this hike to be manageable for the kids, and as much as we we expected this park to be incredible, our expectations were either unmet or unrealistic, or they were just wrong. And that had an impact. I mean, that mattered. Now, the reason why I say this is because basically I've realized that this happens, I mean, you know this, this happens in almost every area of our lives. We all have expectations for how we want our lives to go, how we want the future of our lives to end up. And when those expectations are not met or when those expectations are unrealistic, or again, if if those expectations are just simply wrong, it matters. It affects us. And our lives are just filled with moments like this. I mean, sometimes it's the really, really trivial matters that you deal with on a daily basis. Like, okay, I thought you were going to do the dishes, or I expected you to take out the trash, or I thought this bill was on auto pay, and now I have this fee on my bank account, which really, really stinks. Or I thought I could park here, and then after a night out with my friends, I've come back, and my car has been towed. Or in Denver, I feel like probably the more realistic is I thought this was a two-way street, and then all of a sudden I'm driving down, and all I see is headlights pointing at me. And so maybe it's the trivial. Maybe it's also some of the more personal things that you've encountered. Maybe, maybe it's some of the, the disappointments or the frustrations that you've felt when expectations haven't been met. Maybe you've been, you've been busting your butt all year long at work, expecting that you'd be the one that got the promotion, and it didn't happen. Or you thought he was going to be a lot different from all the other guys you've dated, and, and he wasn't. Or you thought you did all the right things, and you said all the right things, but she's not interested, or he's still not changing. Or you've shared something incredibly personal and confidential with a friend. You confided in them and thought that they would, thought they would maybe just react differently, and they didn't. All of us can tell story after story after story in our lives when our expectations were either unmet or unrealistic or just wrong, and it mattered. It deeply, deeply affected us. It deeply affected us, particularly when those expectations were about a a certain person, maybe a person that we loved or a person that we respected or a person that we admired or a person that we hoped would love and respect and admire us. 
Now, the reason why I say all of that is because in the same way that we have certain expectations for our relationships, in the same way that we have expectations for our careers, in the same way that we have expectations for the future of our lives, whether we realize it or not, whether we consider ourselves religious or not, all of us, regardless of our backgrounds, all of us have certain expectations for God. All of us come before him, even if we don't really believe in him, all have certain expectations about who he is and what he's about and what it means to follow him. And here's the thing. Here's where I think Mark just gives us such a great gift tonight as we study this passage because I think what he's going to be showing us in these few verses is that sometimes our expectations about who God is, sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And that truly matters. In fact, today what we're going to see is how Jesus, he actually confronts some of the deepest held expectations that his closest friends, his disciples, have about who he is. And when he does confront them in this way, what they're going to receive, and consequently what we are going to receive tonight, is a greater and a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what it means for us to follow him. All right, so that's the plan for tonight as we look at Mark chapter 8. If you still have your Bibles open, you can start back at verse 27. That's where we're going to begin tonight. And as we go into this passage, here's what I feel like you just need to know. As, as we're studying this passage, this is literally the center point, really the climax of Mark's gospel. It's the passage on which the entire gospel pivots because we see at this point, this is when Jesus, for the first time, really provides an answer to a question that his closest followers and friends have been wrestling with from the moment that they met him. And that question is, who is Jesus? Like, who is this guy? Who really is Jesus? And that's the question that for the first time, we're going to see Jesus clearly and plainly explain to us. All right, let's see how this unfolds. Look again at verse 27. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went on with his disciple to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So Jesus, it, here's what's happening. He's traveling with his disciples. They're en route to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north of the town that they've just left, Bethsaida. And they're traveling, they're kind of, it's almost like they're hiking. They're hiking up this road that leads to this village. And on the way, Jesus essentially just asked his closest friends, Guys, like, what's the word on the street? I mean, what is it right now that other people are saying about me? And this is an honest question. I mean, his disciples, they interacted obviously a lot with people. They were on the ground level. They were always having conversations with all the local people. And so they would know. And so Jesus asked. Now, before we look at how they respond here, let's just understand what's happening right now. I mean, you know what Jesus is doing, right? And you can see what's happening here. We know that he's... He's not really interested in what the pop popular public opinion is at this moment, is he? I mean, he's not actually interested in what, what other people are saying. He's not like, man, I wonder if I should be doing some public polling right now. Or like, I wonder like, how I'm faring in the public's image. I, I wonder what, what they're saying about me. Maybe I should go send my disciples out for them to find out and do some research. No, this is, this is Jesus. I mean, he's pretty aware of what's happening. He already knows what he's doing is he's setting his disciples up. I mean, he's basically pushing them to think critically. He's doing what any great teacher does. He's subtly hinting at the fact that I'm not asking this question for me. I'm asking it for you. I mean, it's brilliant. 
like, guys, tell me, like, what, what are other people saying out there? Like, what's everybody else saying right now? Go ahead and just, just tell me. Lay it on me. I can handle it. Just let me know. Like, what is it that they're saying? And he just kind of listens and doesn't agree or disagree. He doesn't really correct or rebuke. He's just listening. And you know what the disciples are doing. I mean, it's exactly what I, at least, would do in a moment like that. This question, I mean, it's the question that they've been wrestling with for so long, months now, maybe even years by this point of their time with Jesus. And so this is like the perfect chance to, tr- to test out your opinions on who Jesus is risk-free, right? I mean, it's like he's asking for other people's opinion. You're all alone, and you're just like, well, okay, here's my chance. Well, Jesus, since he asked, some people say you are John the Baptist. I mean, other people say that. I, I would never say that, you know, but that's what other people are saying right now. Or it's like, uh, okay, anything else? Well, um, you think about, like, elementary school, and it's like, uh, Jimmy said you're Elijah, and it's like, it just goes on and on, and he's like, okay, it's, you're John, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, that's what they eventually say, you're one of the prophets, Jesus, they say that you're a prophet, some say you're John, some say Elijah, others really don't know, but that's what they're saying, and then without missing a beat, look at what Jesus says here, we see what he's actually after, it's not the popular opinion, but it's the opinion of his closest friends. He wants to know what they believe, and so he asks the question again, but this time he doesn't give them the easy way out by just relying on what other people think or the popular opinion out there. No, look at what Jesus does. He takes it out of the theoretical and makes it very, very personal. He intensifies this conversation by personalizing the question. In verse 29, look at what he says. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What a fantastic question. I mean, man, can you imagine what that must have felt like for the disciples in that moment as they're standing before Jesus? Can you, can you just feel the intensity of that? Now remember, this is no coincidence that this question lies exactly in the very middle of Mark's gospel. Why? Because this is not really a new question. This question is the, has been the driving force behind every single chapter and event and miracle in the entire gospel of Mark. Everything up until this point in the lives of the disciples, in the teaching to the masses, the healing of the sick, the miracles, the calming of the storms, the feeding of the thousands, the raising the dead to life, everything up to this point has been very intentionally and intelligently crafted in such a way it's purposefully challenging, it's forcefully challenging you, the reader, and Jesus' disciples, to ask the very same question. Who is this guy? I mean, who really is this Jesus? It's the unavoidable question that just demands to be answered. And I love this question. I mean, I love it. I love the simplicity of the question. I love the directness. I love how Jesus makes it so personal. It avoids all the theoretical, out there, public speculation, wishy-washy, well, some people say no. No, he just, he asks us personally seven simple, short words that carry unbelievable weight. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is challenging his disciples. He's challenging you. He's challenging me to take a risk and answer that question. And I love that. I mean, I, I, just, I just love how risky it is. I love how awkward it can be. I love how it makes you a little bit nervous as you think about it. Like, what would I say in a moment like that? Like, what if, what if Andy did something weird and came down and like, handed the microphone to people? Like, well, who do you say Jesus is? And it's like, man, that, what a fantastic question. But you know, like, how it makes us feel. And 
I don't know, I read a passage like this, I see a question like this, and I think just full disclosure here, kind of how we view this at the summit, is just, I mean, what a better question to ask. What a fantastic question to try to honestly answer. And so we do that. I mean, we ask that question. Like, who do you say Jesus is? I mean, I would even ask you tonight, have you answered that question? Have you ever answered that question? Do you feel like you know confidently how you would answer that question? Do you feel like you know personally like what you believe about that? I mean, a lot of times it's really easy, whether you grew up very, very religious or very, very irreligious, to just regurgitate the responses that you've heard all growing up, or maybe something that you heard an English teacher say in college, and it's like, no, what do I really believe? taking ownership of my answer to this question. I believe, it's, I, mean, I believe it's the most important question you could ever possibly answer. Peter has an answer. Look at what he does. He stands up. He looks at Jesus, and with the same degree of brevity in which the question was initially posed, he responds, you are the Christ. Verse 29, you are the Christ. That's it. That was, that was his answer. The answer that would forever alter the course of Jesus' ministry. The, the answer that would forever alter the rest of the book of Mark, the disciples' lives. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one who's coming to rule and to reign as king, establishing God's domain here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the answer. That is the answer to the question. And I believe that question is equally important today for us as it was 2,000 years ago when it was initially asked. And so that's what we're going to first see here in this passage. First is that the answer that Jesus provides. Now secondly, as we continue to work through this scripture, we see that as the conversation really just kind of continues to unfold, we get more than just an answer, but we also get an explanation that follows that, an explanation that kind of elaborates on this. So Turn back to the text with me. If you're looking at your Bible still, we're going to look at verse 30. This is immediately after Peter makes the proclamation that Jesus, you are the Christ. Here's what Jesus responds with in verse 30. It says, verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, which that seems a little bit strange. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But verse 31 says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, I just want to stop. I want to pause and, and just look at that. Really just focus first on that very last line. It says, and he said this plainly. Now, if you've been following along with us uh, for this Mark series from the beginning, you know that at least for the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't ever really have the reputation of being the guy who just speaks plainly right? I mean, that's just never his reputation. He's always the guy who's like speaking in parables or speaking in riddles, answering questions with questions, but nobody, nobody ever accuses Jesus of just speaking way too clearly. And so for Mark to point that out, it's like, it's almost like an, uh, an alert that pops up on your phone, like something's the matter, or something's changed, or something you need to know. That's what's happening right now. Mark's bringing our attention to this point, that Jesus is speaking so plainly about his life and his future ministry. Why? Because what Jesus is doing is he's completely unraveling the expectations his disciples have about him. 
He's completely unraveling the expectations they have about him. Here's what you've got to understand. Although Peter rightly calls Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, he has a very different understanding of what that word means compared to the way Jesus intends to use it. I mean, they're using the same word, yes, but they're using very different definitions behind it. It reminds me of the scene out of The Princess Bride. He's like, you keep using that word. I don't think you... I don't think that means what you think it means. That's exactly what's happening right here. It's like, you're calling me the Christ, you're calling me the Messiah, but we have different definitions of what's happening here because Peter and the disciples, really most of the Jewish nation, they all have the expectation that the Christ, the Messiah, would be a king that exemplifies the kings of their day only better. He would be a political leader that, that brings in peace and justice. He would be a military ruler that would destroy the enemies of the Jewish people. A king that would triumph over Rome and restore Israel to a place of power and might. That was the expectation for the Messiah. And the longer Jesus' disciples are with him, the more they anticipate that he is going to be that one. He is going to be the one that ushers in this new kingdom. But look at then what Jesus says in verse 31. I mean, this is, what, this is what Jesus has to say about his future as king. It seems very deflating. In fact, he's going to tell us four events that are about to happen in the coming days as he becomes the king. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man might... You can even underline these if you'd like in your Bible or ours. Uh, this is what he says. First, he must suffer many things. I mean, things are going to get very difficult and very ugly very soon. Not very appealing for the, the movement of Jesus. Secondly, he's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, which means some of the most respected religious leaders of the day, those who have been entrusted as leaders of God's temple, they're not going to approve of him, which seems kind of strange for the guy who's being sent by God as the Messiah. Third, he's going to be killed, which means he's going to be dead. And it's hard to be king when you're dead, unless you're Elvis. And then finally, look at the last thing. It says, after three days, rise again. Which I think, honestly, at that point, the disciples didn't even hear that part because they're so confused about the first three things that Jesus has already said. Jesus is completely unraveling the expectations of his disciples. They're expecting a triumphant king. He, Jesus is saying he's preparing to die. They're anticipating victory and success. Jesus is talking about suffering, rejection, and death. This isn't just confusing. This is almost embarrassing. It's like, no, Jesus, what are you talking about? No, no, no. In fact, it's so counterintuitive to everything that they've ever known. I mean, just, just look at what Peter does here. This is, so, this is almost hilarious. And Peter, look at the next verse. Peter took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. Peter literally takes Jesus out of the room like a screaming toddler and begins to lecture him about what the Bible says, which is never really a good idea when you're dealing with Jesus, right? I mean, in fact, look at what Jesus, he turns around and he rebukes Peter's rebuke with a slightly stronger one. You see what he says? Get behind me, Satan. And when Jesus compares you to Satan, I mean, that's when you know, like, it's probably time for me to sit down. Like, I'm probably going to stop talking at this point. <laughs> but this is totally understandable. I mean, this is so preposterous to, P to Peter because it goes against everything that they had ever learned about what the Messiah would be. I mean, this would be like, almost like if you were to say something, you know, maybe like after the service, if we were to talk and you were to say something to me like, I don't know, you know, recently, Andy, I just read that we don't really need food and water to survive. It's just a myth that we human beings have bought into. 
I'd be like, are you serious? Like, you're crazy. Like, that's ridiculous. I've known from the earliest ages, like, that's one, those are some of the most basic human needs. But that's what's going on in Peter's heart at that moment. Peter and the disciples, from the earliest of ages, they understood that the Messiah would be the one who would restore God's people and bring about liberation. But they limited this to a political or an economic liberation. Ultimately, they failed to see that their greatest need was not political. It was spiritual. They wanted rescue from the Romans, and Jesus says what you actually need rescue from is far more serious. And the only possible way that that need can be satisfied is by my suffering and ultimately my death in your place as the true and righteous king. Let me ask you something. Right now, if you're anything like me, I feel like I feel like I could probably make a list of about a dozen things right now that I feel like I really need. Like things that I really need in my life right now in order for my life to feel complete or set or just together. I mean, these are things typically you probably wouldn't vocalize. I don't know. I, I, we tend to be the, the generation that's like, oh, no, I'm fine. I don't really have many needs, but... I don't know, like when you think, when you really evaluate how you're doing, when you really evaluate how you're feeling right now, if you're anything like me, you could probably think a list of a dozen things that you feel like, man, if only this was fixed in my life, or if only this were different, if the, only this would change, or this person would do this, like my life would be together. Like I would arrive. Life would actually be good. What is that for you? Right, what is that need right now? If only this need was met. I don't know, maybe for you it's a new job, a new roommate, a boyfriend, a promotion. Maybe right now you you think about the greatest need in your life. I don't know, being something like getting out of debt or losing weight or finding a nicer home or Maybe it's even something like trying to overcome some sort of depression or anxiety or fear. There are all kinds of things like that in your life right now. I know that. I know way too many of you. We love too many of you. We know your stories. That There are all kinds of things in your life right now that if you could identify, if only this was fixed, my life would be all right. I don't want... The last thing I want to do is to diminish those things. I don't want you to think that like those don't matter. They do. I think they matter a lot. They matter to you. They matter to us as a church. They matter to God. But here's what I think you need to realize. None of those things, as important as they are, are your greatest need. None of those things are your greatest need. None of them represents your biggest need. There's one need that every human heart desperately has. And this need gets to the heart of who you are, the heart of what God has designed you to be and designed you to do. This passage, I think, points us to believe and understand that our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need, is to to have a fully restored relationship with God. Our greatest need is to have a fully restored relationship with God. 
friends, you were hardwired to live in relationship with him. You were hardwired to do that. Your life was meant to be shaped by a love for him. And so if you're still living in a broken relationship with him, if you're separated from Jesus, if you're separated from God the Father because of your sin, and you've not been brought into a relationship with him by his grace and through your faith, I mean, you're missing the primary purpose of your very existence. What Jesus begins to explain to his disciples and begins to explain to us is that our greatest need, is, it's not physical, it's not financial, it's not emotional, it's not social, it's spiritual. And there are a lot of things going on in your life right now, and there are a lot of things going on in the entirety of our, of our world that everybody is, is eager to offer an explanation. Like, oh, only we had a change in international policy. If only we had a greater understanding of who was the most compassionate type of person. There's the problem. There's the problem. Here's our need. Here's our need. No, what Jesus is pointing us to believe is that our greatest need is to have a fully restored relationship with him. Yes, he will be the king, but he will be a king unlike any other king. He's not reaching for power or fame. He's joyfully submitting his life as a sacrifice for the people that he loves so that we can be brought into a right relationship with him. And that is good news. That is good news for us. That is what it means for him to be the Messiah. That is what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. That Je when Jesus says that the anointed one is the one who's been anointed to suffer and die on our behalf in our place so that we can, we can have that relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, what we see in the final portion of this passage is that Jesus offers an invitation. I mean, he offers actually a public invitation. Look again with me at verse 34. You see what he says? Look, it says, I'm calling the crowd to him with his disciples, which means that at this time then there are others who have started to gather. He begins addressing an entire crowd. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Can you imagine what that would have been like in that moment if you were one of Jesus' disciples? I mean, you've been invited into the inner circle. You've been a part of Jesus' entourage from the very beginning, way before you knew that he was the Messiah. You were willing to follow him, and you were in, you were ready, and you were, I mean, probably at this point, really developing visions for what your life was going to look like if Jesus becomes the king. It's like, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to be influential. Influential. I'm going to have a position. And then what does Jesus do? He turns to the crowds and he says, if you want to follow me, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow. Now, if you're trying to lead a public movement, particularly with first century Jews, starting off with deny yourself, it's probably not the best strategy. I mean, these are God's chosen people, and you're essentially saying, disregard who you are and get behind me. It's not very attractive, is it? One commentator I actually read this week said, for Jesus' disciples to try and soften his words here or kind of like explain them away, it would have been a hopeless cause. There was no way around it. Suddenly visions of being in with the king were not nearly as attractive for his disciples as they once were. Jesus said, if you want to follow, you're literally going to follow the downward, humiliating path of suffering that I'm about to walk. And then he says, take up your cross. And this language of the cross, I mean, this would have been a very disturbing image 
in the minds of his initial listeners. I mean, I know today we tend to think about the cross, it's usually more of just like a, a, a symbol of religion, or it's kind of like a, I don't know, this is something symbolic, jewelry that we wear. But in the minds and the ears of the original listeners, like, this is, this is not in any way, um, I don't know, like, acute or, or interesting metaphor. This would be almost grotesque. Way before, that, way before the cross was a, a symbol of religion, it was a torture instrument. And so for them to hear Jesus say, like, this is what it means to follow me, this is what it means to be a part of my crowd, like, I'm not really sure I want to be a part of that. There's no sentimental uh, attachment to it at all. It's literally revolting. But as grotesque as an image as this is, as self-deprecating, or even as arrogant as this could come across for Jesus to tell people this, I mean, here's what I've really come to believe. I really have come to believe that this is one of the most beautiful, life-giving invitations that we could possibly ever receive. I believe that. I believe that's one of the most life-giving invitations you could ever receive. Because here's what Jesus, Jesus is saying. He says, I'm inviting you to bid farewell to your life as you currently know it. The needs, the fears, the anxiety. I'm inviting you to step away from that which isn't really truly life at all so that you can experience what truly is. To put to death, to deny the lesser cravings of your heart, all the different things in this world that compete for your deepest affections and worship. All the pressures to perform, the need to achieve, the fight to be accepted, the cycles of seeking approval, the pursuit of happiness and joy and meaning apart from God that we try to find in the things of this world. He says, let it go. Just let it go, let it go, let it go. Here's the invitation that he gives us. Stop playing God of your life. Stop trying to be the king. You don't need to be the king anymore. You know the king. You don't have to bear the burden of trying to act like king of your little universe. Because in his kingdom, we are blessed with every good thing we possibly would ever need. He says then, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Jesus is astoundingly clear here. It's only when we let go of our momentary agendas and take up his eternal one will we experience true life. It requires us to surrender our distorted sense of our own personal need, but to let go of our expectations of God that are wrong and allow him to enter into our life and transform the way that we know who he is and what it means for us to follow him. One pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor and theologian from the, the 20th century, he said it this way. I think it will be on the screen. It says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark, embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Friends, that's the invitation to Jesus, to surrender our lives to the king who will suffer and be rejected on our behalf so that we can be brought into right relationship with him.
That is good news. That is a gift. That is a grace that Jesus extends to us. He is eager to extend to us. Let's pray. Father God, I know in this room, even tonight, it is filled with men and women who have all kinds of different expectations about who you are and what you're about and what it means to follow you. We have all kinds of expectations for what you're going to do in our life. We have all kinds of expectations for what you're going to do in our, our world. I just want to admit, maybe even confess tonight, that sometimes we're just wrong. We're wrong, and we need you to step in and correct the way that we think and correct the way that we believe. And ultimately, I just pray that we would believe that it's true, that you care for us so deeply, that you desire, as the king, to restore our relationship to God the Father. I pray that that we would believe that. I pray that we'd be able to answer the question, who really is Jesus? I pray that we would... I I pray that we would just be able to sleep well knowing that we can answer that question confidently. That there's no doubt in our minds, there's no question in our hearts, that we know Jesus is the one, the Messiah. He is the anointed one who has come to die in our place for our sins so that we can have life, life to the fullest. I pray that that would be true amongst us. I pray that, that we would believe that. I pray that we would architect our lives around that so that we can become faithful followers of you and know the fullness of joy that we can find in your presence. We love you, God. We ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit's power. Amen.